Good evening, fellow inertial observers. I am here with geophysicist and cryoseismologist. She is a physics PhD student at the California Technical Institute, also known to the cool kids on the block as Caltech, Celeste Labedz. Hey, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me, Dylan. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I am so pumped for this. Uh, and as per the usual, all listeners here who are with us live are encouraged to ask questions, however they may come up uh, in your brain in the course of this amazing, will be amazing discussion. Um, but the first thing I do, as is tradition, is ask our very special guests to tell us, the listeners, about yourself, what you do, uh, your research, your hobbies, all that good stuff. So take it away. All right, so yeah, I'm Celeste Lebedz. I'm a PhD student in geophysics here at Caltech. I'm in the seismological laboratory. And uh, yeah, my research is mainly focused on glaciers. So I am a seismologist, but I don't research earthquakes at all. No earthquakes wow. for me, just uh, glaciers. <laughs> so this is in the larger field of environmental seismology, which is using Seismology is a tool to investigate all kinds of different earth surface processes. Some people look at wind and some people look at rivers and some people look at storms and some people look mm. at erosion. Like there's all kinds of things you can look at using seismology as a tool. And I look at glaciers. Specifically, I'm looking at uh, so, two on, kind of categories of things. You, before you um, totally nerd out, which is always here, uh, I, have a, <laughs> I, I have a dumb question. Uh, what it's, what uh, is exactly seismology in this broader term that you're talking about? Because whenever I hear seismology, I hear, you know, shaking earth means earthquakes kind of thing. Yeah, sure. Let's back it up a little bit. So, yeah, yeah seismology is the study of motions in the earth. The okay. way we often encounter those is mm. through earthquakes. Um, right, but right. really, you can have motion. And from lots of different sources in the earth and you can get source you can get motions that are so small that any person wouldn't feel them at all so you can use seismology to look at earthquakes on the other side of the world and those seismic waves will travel all the way around and get to the other side and nobody will be able to feel them there but seismometers mm. the instruments that seismologists use can can feel wow. them and you can do all kinds of cool science using really really small motions wow okay so yeah, and so they, it really, when you broaden it from earthquakes to anything that is making the ground move, it gives you so many more cool options of what you can do with it. Um, and yeah, and that's where my research comes in. Okay, so, yeah, so I, another I an, another silly question. Or maybe not silly, but, you know, uh, <laughs> just I love question. silly questions. <laughs> um, what could possibly make the ground move uh, besides kind of tectonic plates going bump in the night? So big motions usually mm -hmm. come from either tectonic plates going bump in the night, mm -hmm. right? earthquakes, or you can get bigger motions in the ground from explosions. Seismometers are used to monitor for mm. uh, to see if any countries are doing any weapons testing oh, that they shouldn't be. That is how uh, that's how we keep track. 
of what countries wow. are testing what weapons. I did is, not uh, know that. We wow. have an explosion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The um, yeah, the nuclear test ban um, treaty is monitored using seismometers, um, among other tools. But yeah, seismometers are a really big one because yeah, that puts energy mm. of motion into the ground. And so what is the and sensitivity so like of these seismometers? Like, like, like what kind of fluctuations? Like, I mean, and I know I'm sure it varies depending on if you <laughs> bought it at Walmart or Target, but, um, yeah. you know, <laughs> but you know, what I guess is the so mean. Seismometers yeah. can get even as small as like nanometer sized motion. What? Some really good seismometers can detect. So basically the best seismometer ever made um, in practical use right now is on Mars. Um, you may have heard of the InSight mission. Uh -huh. uh, that has basically the best seismometer ever um, on it because they're, yeah, they, they wanted to see everything as mm -hmm. best as possible. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you can detect motions that are just nanometers and um, they, some seismometers will be sampling at really high frequencies too. So, you know, they'll be taking, um, you can get really, really fast motions. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're, they're super precise motion detectors. They can they can get things that humans could never feel. They can get things that your cell phone accelerometer could never notice. They can get very, very, very tiny motions. Wow. Which is good because if an earthquake happens on the other side of the world, it's going to be tiny by the time it gets to you. Right. Or if some country is testing nuclear weapons, uh, those uh, motions are pretty small um, by the time they get to another country that wants to keep an eye on them. Right, right, right. So... Uh, I know it, it may not be fair for me because I don't know if there's this kind of clear division between experimental, you know, geophysicists and theoretical ge geophysicists. But like, I'm just so like, how can you somehow parse out uh, the signal of a atom bomb, you know, so many miles away from just, you know, Harry who's going to the bathroom in the office walking around because... You know, I feel like there's yeah, so, so much noise. That's, that's, yeah, that's the question in seismology is, I saw a squiggle on the seismometer. Mm. What made that? Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's that's one of the big wow. questions. Because, you know, as far as, you know, the amplitude of motion you get, a small nearby earthquake and a big far away earthquake could give you the same amplitude of motion. Um, so you need more tools to look at it. And, you know, a bomb or an earthquake they might look, they might give you similar, yeah, amplitude of motion, mm -hmm. but they look really differently. You have to take a look oh. at sort of the, the bigger picture oh. of what kind of motion it means. So like maybe so like one the of patterns. Your tools, yeah, so go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So one, one of your tools is um, like the frequency of the motion that's created. Uh -huh. um, so yeah, seismic waves are waves. They're, uh, yeah, they're, they're waves just like you would just, like you learn about in intro physics class, um, they're waves and they have a frequency. And um, the higher frequency part of a signal gets attenuated more easily. So that means it goes away. Um, mm -hmm. It gets attenuated more easily than the lower frequency part of the signal. So the same source, you know, nearby or far away, frequency is one tool you could use to check that out. Mm. Now, for earthquakes, you have another cool tool because earthquakes tend to send out multiple types of waves so when a big earthquake happens the lots of energy is put into the ground right then and wow. it makes multiple different kinds of waves so you may have learned this i think i learned 
learned this in like middle school science class or something mm-hmm. once. Um, but the fastest wave that comes out, so the first one to reach you is the P wave. Mm. The P can stand for either primary or pressure. I actually so didn't learn about wave. this like in like middle wave. school. This is actually, uh, I don't know if I'm exposing any kind of really? ignorance or dozing okay, off well, in middle school. Learning. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> yeah, no, that's amazing. Yeah, so well, you said that these are signals. Any, any time's kind a of... good time to learn. So yes. Yeah, so, so the yeah. P wave comes first, uh-huh. and that's that's a pressure wave, so it's like a sound wave. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a the next wave is the S wave, so that's, the S is secondary or shear. Um, so that's <laughs> that's a shear wave. So those are two different types of motion, and they're going at different speeds. Oh, okay. And then um, those can go through the solid earth. Um, and then after that, even slower yet, is the surface waves. Those can only travel along the surface of the earth. Okay. So if there is an earthquake in Japan and you and me here are looking at a seismometer right here in LA. Mm -hmm. The P wave would come first and then the S wave would come second and then the surface wave would come third because it takes a while to get from Japan to here. And so I take it that the surface wave isn't also called the S wave because that would be kind of confusing, right? You said P wave, S wave. Yeah, it's a little confusing. And then there's there's multiple types of surface waves too, actually. There's Rayleigh waves and love waves and there are slightly Mm. different types of motion as well. Um, I actually have an animation that I made for Twitter on uh, Rayleigh waves. Uh, It's really, really cool. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, seismic waves, uh, some of them are Rayleigh waves. Mm. But, yeah, so you can look at the difference in timing between those waves arriving. That can give you a clue about where an earthquake might be relative to you. Mm. And then if you have multiple seismometers in multiple places, then you can use all those tools to figure out exactly where and when an earthquake happened. Mm. So, now... We were talking about telling in between different types of sources. So to tell apart an earthquake versus a bomb blast, because you don't want to get mad at some country <laughs> right. if, if you know you think they're having but really it's just earthquakes. Um, wow. You know, uh, so the cool way to tell that is that bomb blasts they don't make S waves. They Mm. only make P waves. So the reason that those shear waves are created is because earthquakes involve sliding. So that sliding is what gives you um, the shear motion to create Mm. those shear waves and send them out everywhere. But a bomb, which is just an explosion, and then usually a compression afterwards, um, that will only make pressure waves. It can't make shear waves. So if you look at seismometers all around the world and say, boy, it looks like a pressure wave came through here, but there wasn't any shear wave afterwards. Mm. Oh no, somebody's up to no good. (laughs) Um, Wow. It's not just nuclear weapons testing and stuff. You can see things like mining explosions that are done on purpose. Right? I mean, because it's a pressure wave. I mean, mean, be really, really heavy. Yeah, yeah, pressure waves are pressure waves. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so stuff Stuff like mining blasts too um, can give you can give you um, P wave only events. Wow. But then big things like that aren't the only things that are putting motion energy into the ground. Mm. Um, so that's where environmental seismology can come in. You can get motion you can get motion energy and seismic waves in the ground from things like the ocean. That's a major source of what we call seismic noise that's the continuous motions of the ground that are tiny that are happening all the time even when there's no earthquakes mm, mm. so there's this yeah this kind of background just like you know if nobody's talking in my house there's still the fridge running and the wind in the trees outside oh, you know there's yeah, always a background noise yeah. there's always a background wow. noise in seismology too so um yes the ocean is a major source of that mm. waves interacting in the middle of the ocean 
create pressure waves that go all the way to the seafloor. Really? And then that's where they can connect with the solid earth. And you can detect those worldwide. Even if you're not anywhere near the ocean, you can detect them in the middle of a continent. You can detect seismic noise from the ocean. What? So those must be gigantic. That is amazing. I mean, I just want to say, I mean, I mean, that was such an eloquent, just so just clear description of like what you're doing and just, uh, man, uh, just cool. Se- seismic yeah. noise is the coolest thing. I love it. I think it's cooler than earthquakes, but you know, maybe <laughs> that's mostly just me. Yeah, no, I mean, and then other, other motions. I, I guess I just have a question there um, on that. Is that do these have to be kind of extremely huge waves uh, to be able to detect those things that make all, I mean, making it all the way to the ocean floor? That seems insane to me. Yeah. So um, you get seismic waves um, from ocean waves. Um, well, I guess there, there's two ways you can get it because mm-hmm. ocean waves interacting with the shore as they as they are uh, approaching shore, that can give you some seismic noise. Sure. But then, yeah, waves interacting, um, like waves crossing each other and meeting in the middle of the ocean, can um, that's that's the one that you can really kind of detect everywhere, which is super wild. Wow. And it's it's not so much that it's, you know, huge waves interacting. It's that it's wow. a lot of waves interacting oh, all the time. Okay. But it does, get, it does get higher amplitude when there's, for example, big winter storms in the North Atlantic. You get stronger um, stronger ocean noise from sure, that. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And so then there's, there's all kinds of things that can similarly be putting motion energy in the ground. And that's what a lot of environmental seismologists look at. So, you know, if you've ever, like, stood next to, like, a rushing mountain river or something you know, that's loud. Like you can hear mm-hmm. that it's loud mm-hmm. and you can imagine, well, if it's making these sound waves to get to ah, my ears, right, right, it's also right. making motion all around. Man, so if you put a seismometer so cool. next to a river, <laughs> yeah, you can pick up that the river is going just, because there is yeah. tumbling, rushing water and tumbling boulders and gravel and all those kinds of things. Um, so you can detect those. Those tend to make uh, high frequency seismic noise. Mm. So you see those really well um, in like, you know, like two to like 50 hertz or whatever is a good place to see a river. Um, and then landslides also make really awesome seismic signals. Um, because yeah, it's, it's a lot of moving stuff. If you are moving stuff around yeah, on the right, earth, right, you right. are making seismic signals. Okay. I don't, um, I, I, I don't want to cut you off here, but we have, uh, a, a load of actual like wonderful questions here in the chat that, uh, I do want to get right. to. Um, so, uh, chunk master flex is asking, do you, get to do field work in remote places. You bet I do. It is my, which is one of my favorite parts about being an environmental seismologist is that I have spent uh, two summers now doing field work. I um, work in Southeast Alaska on glaciers out there. So I have twice um, flown to Juneau, Alaska with a bunch of seismometers um, ready to deploy onto glaciers. Wow. And then I go up, I, uh, live on the glacier for a while and I put seismometers out, I let them do their thing. And uh, then, uh, yeah, then I come back and the other 11 months of the year, I am here in California sitting in front of my computer all day, every day. Wow, man, Um, the best of both worlds. You get the cold, you know, you get the northern lights, even if you're lucky. (laughs) Man, that's awesome. Well, I go in the summer, so it's too bright to get the northern lights, but I wish. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, they don't, you know, they save those for the postdocs and everything. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, so we have another question and, uh, here. Yeah, so there's... Sorry, do you have something oh, to yeah, add there? I was going to say, and then that, because we, we haven't talked about um, uh, 
why why to go to a glacier with seismometers? That's a good point. Um, yeah, but go you can ahead. imagine there's more motions there yeah. that are are getting into the ground. So the ice is. So if you're not familiar with glaciers, Google image search. They're lovely, um, <laughs> but they're basically a big pile of ice that moves downhill under its own weight. It's just so heavy that the ice literally flows. Wow. And so while it's flowing, it's sliding against rock on the bottom. It's cracking and and rumbling all on its own. And there's liquid water flowing through it. So all of those cool motions and stuff can be detected on seismometers, just like you can detect rivers, mm. you can detect hydrology inside of glaciers, just like you can detect earthquakes, you can detect ice quakes as the ice cracks mm. and slides and stuff. Wow. Um, so yeah, those are all really cool ways to just monitor what's going on in glaciers. We just want them to, want size, I want seismology to be a tool to help us understand glaciers better. So yeah, that's that's why I spend a month a year um, uh, on glaciers in Alaska. Wow, man, that is so cool and an awesome opportunity to see. So so when you go, it's basically how, how long is night in the summer in Alaska? Um, so where I work is it is I'm, I'm in the Panhandle of Alaska, so there is like technically a nighttime there and then, <laughs> um, but it's it's like a couple of hours of like sort of dark. Um, so that, that that's good because you know yeah, yeah. there's a lot of time in the day to get your work done, but also there's so much time in the day that you have to work. Um, right, because so, the sun's yeah, up. You're like, I have to be, work. The uh, sun's up. You know, relaxed time is not yeah, yet here. You know, I, <laughs> I have this many seismometers to deploy and this many hours of sunlight, so I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love it. Okay, so we have another question here. Um, he says, uh, how often, I guess in units of years, he's telling you what units to report in, um, do tsunamis uh, derived from earthquakes occur? So I guess how often do tsunamis that are started by earthquakes occur around? Okay, so... Tsunamis, you have to have a particular set of earthquake conditions for them to happen mm. because sometimes a big earthquake will happen, no tsunami. Wow. Sometimes an earthquake will happen, tsunami. Hmm. So um, basically what that. you need to make a tsunami. Yeah, yeah. So what you need to make a tsunami is a big vertical displacement of the seafloor. And mm. not every earthquake will do that. Right, um, right. So for example, in California, we're on the uh, San Andreas Fault here. You and I um, mm -hmm. are both living very near the San Andreas Fault. Shout but out that San Andreas fault... fault. You heard it here first, physics <laughs> after hours. But uh, that, that fault won't cause any tsunamis because it's a side-to-side -side motion along mm. it. It's called a strike-slip fault. Mm. Um, so there's not really any vertical motion there. So the best place to get tsunamis are subduction zones. Mm. So that's where you have one tectonic plate being pushed underneath another one. Mm. So some examples of subduction zones are Alaska is a great one. Wow. Um, Chile, Japan. Wow. Um, Washington and Oregon, the Pacific Northwest, that's Perfect. a subduction zone. Um, and uh, yeah, there's uh, places like uh, Sumatra, um, like uh, Tonga, there's there's subduction zones. Uh, basically the, the Pacific Ocean is kind of rimmed with subduction zones. Um, so you need an earthquake in one of those zones, but not every earthquake there will give you a tsunami mm. because there's a particular kind of set of conditions you need to have happen. So what happens when you have, there's, you know, you have one plate and then you have a subducting plate. So like, you mm -hmm. know, this would be Alaska and this is the Pacific Ocean and the Pacific mm -hmm. Ocean uh, plate is diving down. And as it goes, it can sort of warp 
warp Alaska on top of it and push it down. And then when an earthquake wow. happens, bam, it can rebound uh. that back up. And that's where you get a big vertical displacement. So that means the ground is all of a sudden a lot higher and the water on top of it needs to be higher too. Because right. that's just where of all course, it's yeah. got to go. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then it'll spread out from there. So yeah, you need a very particular set of conditions to make a tsunami. But tsunamis are very dangerous. They're one of the biggest hazards that come from earthquakes because right. they're so damaging and they can spread so far. Mm. But the good news is when a tsunami happens, nowadays in the modern day we can get some pretty good warning for it because when an earthquake happens that i have might a guess be... i have a guess and this is probably yeah, this is probably totally wrong but um <laughs> is that uh is that if and so the you know this tectonic plate movement happens kind of at the sea floor uh more or less yeah uh and if the speed of sound is faster in land than it is in water then we can detect that kind of motion uh, from a seismometer, uh, seismometer on land before the tsunami could hit. Is that at yeah, all possible? So we, we do detect the earthquake first. Yes. So when, when a big earthquake happens, yeah, so we detect the earthquake first. Mm -hmm. And then when there is an earthquake that looks like it was in a subduction zone, but pretty shallow enough that it might affect some seafloor displacement, mm -hmm. then we say, okay, now we have to go look at the buoys because there are buoys in the ocean oh. um, that we can watch for large displacements in. Mm. Um, and then when those start going, then we then we realize, oh no, we gotta we gotta you know warn people near coasts. Right. Some places have sirens. Some places have phone oh, alerts I and see, stuff. I see. But uh, tsunamis tsunamis are a gravity wave in water. So they are, um, they move at about the speed of a jet airplane. Okay, so can you... So if a big so, earthquake happens... So the a gravity wave, not a gravitational wave. This is something that... Uh, uh, no, a, a, a gravity-driven <laughs> fluid wave. Yeah. Okay. Gotta specify. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, yeah, no, no Lego here. Yeah, it's a gravity-driven wave in a fluid. Okay, okay. Um, but yeah, so that's going to move through the ocean at about the speed of a jet airplane. So, like, if a big earthquake happens, say, in Alaska, um, and you're wondering how long would a tsunami take to get to L.A., um, a good way to find out would be to look up how long a flight is from Anchorage to LAX. <laughs> okay. Because they okay. move at jet yeah. airplane speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, it, it can, you know, it, it'll take, you know, a cross trans-Pacific flight. You know, some of those flights are, like, 14 hours. So, that that's how long a tsunami can take to, you know, cross from, you know, a tsunami in, like um japan to I get see. to somewhere like the u.s um and so the ones but, that yeah, kind so, of like destroy or you know or that the most destructive does that just mean that they happen really really kind of close to the shoreline or uh and we don't so have that time tsunamis can be tsunamis can be very destructive no matter how close you are to them if it was a big enough earthquake mm. so um for example the pacific northwest is a subduction zone it can have really big earthquakes and they can generate tsunamis and mm. um we know the exact wow. date that the last earth, the last like very large tsunami genic means it makes a tsunami uh, earthquake happened in the Pacific Northwest because um, Japan was already keeping written records um, of tsunamis. Mm -hmm. And normally they would say earthquake, tsunami, and that would be all of their records. But they had one tsunami that had no earthquake before it. And they eventually tracked it back, correlated it with um, some geographical evidence in the Pacific Northwest. It also matched with the indigenous folks' um, mm. uh, oral histories that there had been big earthquakes there. Um, and they figured out 
that in 1700, uh, an earthquake that was, uh, I think, yeah, magnitude nine or something um, happened on the Pacific Northwest, caused a tsunami, and um, it went all the way across the ocean and caused a lot of destruction in oh, Japan. Wow. But yeah, if you were closer by, then that is also, that, that is right, worse right. because, you know, it spreads out. But you can have big damage from tsunamis that are caused far away as well. Man, that is so, what you do is so interesting. Uh, it is so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's a wild topic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's okay. also, it's really, it's a really fun topic to talk to people about because like everybody is like yeah. kind of terrified and interested in earthquakes exactly. in like a scary way. So, exactly. Like everybody is like ready to talk. <laughs> everybody wants to talk about tsunamis and stuff. It's awesome. Yeah. No, man, that is fascinating. Uh, okay. So we have another question here from Chunkmaster Flex. Uh, he says, uh, what are the most important current unanswered questions in geophysics? Okay, so that's that question is going to vary depending on who you mm, ask. Okay. Um, but uh, one of the, one of the things that I talked about earlier is is uh, still a big question, especially for environmental seismologists. It's mm -hmm. just you know when we see some kind of squiggle on our seismometer, mm. what does that mean? Mm -hmm. You know what what made that? There's a lot of things we're still trying to figure out exactly how to go from the squiggle exactly. back to. Event. And that and is we're like getting a, better and better at that. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and that's amazing is that uh, because, I mean, that's like a just a, a, a telltale, just old problem in any field is we have a signal. What does it mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the classic inverse problem. Everybody's trying to figure exactly, out how to do it best. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so that's that's, of course, is a big is a big question of how exactly do we go from squiggle to real event? Mm. Um, we're getting better at that partially because our instruments are getting better and we're getting better at math and physics mm -hmm. and all those mm -hmm. kinds of things that help us understand the creation of seismic waves in general. Some other big questions are, you know, figuring out more details about earthquake hazards because that's, you know, a big physics problem, but also a big human problem mm -hmm. because it really matters to us like when and where earthquakes happen um so understanding hazards is you know once again something we're getting better at but it's still it's still hard so one thing that i did want to say in this is nobody can predict earthquakes if someone tells you they can predict the time place and magnitude of an earthquake they are not using science to do that and they're probably trying to sell you something <laughs> um, you heard it here first so physics fun. after hours <laughs> so uh yeah i yeah. I, I guess i have so a follow-up really there is, wish we could predict earthquakes. and so why is yeah. that that we can't predict earthquakes i feel like that's a natural question to follow that that is one of that's one of the big questions in geophysics okay. because some geophysicists <laughs> think that we can't predict them because we don't have enough information you know if we had all of the details about the exact strain state and um all of the asperities along the fault the exact geometry some folks think that if we had all of that then we could predict earthquakes mm. and some folks think that no there's still things that are fundamentally random mm. in what makes an earthquake start mm. and um, so there's a big debate yeah, there so that, that's a big question interesting will, will we ever be able to because we know we can't right now but we're wondering if we're limited by our ability or if we're limited by physics i would pay good money um, other, to hear some of those question. debates like do you have like could you pull some strings get yeah. like three of them on once like a <laughs> physics after hours i would i would love to hear that debate <laughs> another kind of cool related question to that is when an earthquake starts uh -huh. what makes it stop because, you know, a rupture can start on a fault right. and it can go just a little ways and give you a little tiny earthquake. Right. 
or it can go a long ways and give you a huge earthquake. And so, yeah, we don't mm. we don't know how earthquakes exactly how earthquakes start and why and when and where and stuff. We don't know that, and we don't really know why and when and where they stop. So that's that seems like it's we don't know anything, and we know a lot of things in between. <laughs> right, right. But uh, right, yeah, right. we want to know why they stop too, because then that course, might give yeah. us a clue of when we have that v- the very first seismic waves are coming in. It'd be really cool if we could say, oh you know, this is just a tiny one, like no worries, or this one started and mm. it will still keep going. Mm. So, uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Interesting, um, interesting physics and figuring out, yeah, what really is random in that, what is, you know, maybe someday we can find out, um, things like that. Okay, man, that is awesome. Uh, I could, yeah, I, yeah. I could talk about this till the sun comes up, but, uh, we got questions here, uh, <laughs> that we got to move on to. Great. Uh, one of them is from Helicio uh, Felipe Jr. saying, Good evening. Uh, we've had uh, a Pangea long, long time ago. Will we ever have one again? Pangea. Ooh, that's a great yeah, question. Yeah. So if you're not familiar with Pangea, Pangea was a supercontinent. And so in the in the Mesozoic era, that's when we had the dinosaurs, um, the continents were basically all connected together. Wow. All of the world's land mass was just basically connected and then there was one ocean on the rest of the world um and those continents move it's uh yeah continental drift plate tectonics the continents are moving around and they're moving today so Mm -hmm. i guess uh pangea broke up um and it it created yeah sad right um yeah um so Pangea broke up, sadly, um, but uh, yeah, it, that's how we got our continents that we have today. So when Pangea broke up, um, you know, South America and Africa, they kind of look like they match up a little bit, like you can put them together. Mm-hmm. Uh, they split apart right there. And uh, North America was in the mix, too. It was kind of up next to Europe and like Northern Africa, and they split open, too, and it made the, um, uh, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And so that's that's where the plates are actually spreading apart, and that's still spreading today. And so is the. Um, I mean, this so, is a really silly question. Is the Mid Atlantic Ridge yeah. is that, is that the, I, I guess just by nomenclature, I guess that's the, the kind of, vertical line between, you know, in the Atlantic Ocean that split, uh, you know, the European and, uh, African continents and stuff over there it's yeah just, so it's, oh, it's, it's the line <laughs> where the continents are still still spreading apart so okay. um it's like um it's making new seafloor mm-hmm. and pushing it outward mm. um so it's it's not like perfectly straight it's kind of squiggles around a little bit mm. um look up a seafloor topography map and you can see it's not just the mid-atlantic oh, ridge there's other ridges that's around, the thing around i the felt on the globe back uh, in elementary school when i was allo- allowed to be around people yeah yeah cool bumpy globe yeah, and it yeah. had yeah it had the little lines down the ocean yeah okay yeah. okay um so yeah it's that's still spreading apart today it's still making new ocean floor it's making new oceanic crust right now as we speak you heard it here um, first and physics so after north hours america yeah Perfect. yeah <laughs> north america and europe are uh they're moving apart at about the same rate that your fingernails grow what so yeah so you get you know this far away from Europe wow. uh, in however long it's been since I've trimmed my nails. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's you, awesome. we are we are literally awesome. getting further away from from Europe, which is pretty cool. That's happening right now. So yeah, the the continents are all moving, and uh, another kind of subfield of um, uh, geophysics 
um, looks at uh, the motion of plate tectonics. And so there are things like GPS stations that are really, really precise, like way better than your phone GPS. Mm. So like your phone GPS can get you within a couple of meters, but these can get you within like less than a centimeter um, of exact position. That is insane. So that's small enough that you can track continental motions, which is really rad. That is insane. And they can use that to figure wow. out, yeah, how the continents are moving relative to each other. And so over time, uh, we have noticed in geologic history, there have been, yeah, a couple of different occasions of continents smooshing together and then spreading apart again. A long time in the future, we probably are going to have another supercontinent. It won't be in the exact same geometry as oh, Pangea. Uh, but things will collide. But uh, yeah. Yeah, things will definitely collide again. Wow, that's crazy. Okay, so we have another question here, actually from your very same bloodline, yeah. from uh, uh, Marie Lebedz. <laughs> hey, Marie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Marie Lebedz asks, uh, do earthquakes uh, from different faults look different on seismometers? Oh, this is a super rad question. Thanks, Marie. <laughs> okay, so this is for, for the audience. This is my cousin. She's tuned in the wow. live stream. She lives in Nebraska and I live in California. Um, but uh, yeah, so do earthquakes from different faults look different on seismometers? So yes and no. Um, in some ways, an, an earthquake is an earthquake. You can still describe them with similar physics. It's still some things sliding against other things. Um, but there are sort of different, we classify different types of plate boundaries. Um, so remember earlier I said that we can't get a tsunami from the San Andreas Fault because mm -hmm. it's a strike-slip right, fault? Right, right, right. So that's, that means that it's moving sideways. So like mm -hmm. here in Los Angeles, we're actually, we're not on the North American tectonic plate. We're on the Pacific tectonic plate, even though we're on land. Mm. Um, and we are moving north relative to the North American tectonic plate. So, like, wow. um, you know, over a really long so time. So, what is the North American um, tectonic plate? I, don't, I, I can't, I, I mean, I, I, I've heard of the San Andreas fault line, and, like, you know, I could sketch more or less with, you know, probably about two sigma, you know, the right line. Uh, but, yeah. What is the North American uh, tectonic plate line? Yeah. So, um, it is. If you're standing on North America, except for like, yeah, this little, little bit of like Los Angeles and stuff. If you're standing on North America, you're on the North American plate. Um, oh. The North American plate extends out um, into the Atlantic Ocean, um, kind of. So even though that's oh. like the ocean, that's still like the North American plate. Um, oh. So the, the boundary is at the Mid-Atlantic Ridge there. Um, is there like a and graph of goes, like all the plates, uh, like like that you're talking, like these big plates? Like, is there like uh, visualizations of this, like on Google and stuff, of just like the plates? Yeah, look up plate tectonic. Look up plate tectonic map. It'll really clear it up. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah. So the North American uh, yeah. plate is yeah, con continental North America mostly. It'll have little lines around it. Um, I didn't promise go you good into, questions like, here. You know, the good Caribbean I'm different sorry. plate and like uh, <laughs> yeah. So North America is. If you're almost anywhere in North America, you're on the North American plate. If you're in Los Angeles or Baja, California, you are in you are on the Pacific plate. Oh, shouts out um, Pacific plate. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, team Pacific plate. Um, but yeah, so you and I, if we were to leave Los Angeles and, you know, keep driving and like, you know, go over like the um, go over the mountains, then we would be back on the North American plate. Oh, yeah. I don't want to go that way. Yeah, I don't want to do that. Um, but yeah, so that, that's one kind of plate boundary is plates moving past each other. Wow. And so, um, the geometry of earthquake waves emitted from that, let us know that that's the orientation of the motion happening there. But then the, sub the subduction zones I talked about earlier. So that's plates moving together 
And so you get, um, uh, yeah, you get earthquakes from, you know, vertical, um, uh-huh. there's a vertical component to how that motion is going. And um, you can get, there are two types of faults that have vertical motion on them. There's normal faults, which happen when things uh, pull apart. So if, if these are, my, my plates are meeting at like an angle or something, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if I pull them apart, then they go like this, that's a normal fault. If I push them together and they go like this, that's called a reverse fault. Mm. Um, so yeah, those are, those are the, the three types of fault geometries. And when you have an earthquake on one, you can tell which geometry it was by looking at the distributions of um, uh, size ways that come out man this sounds like just such a rich subject of uh just like like rich even in mathematics and like modeling and just uh, it just sounds yeah. like so much fun so I, I call i'm jealous yeah the, the geosciences <laughs> I, I call the geosciences like the ultimate applied science because yeah. you can apply every science to the earth so like i apply physics um, some people are applying wow. chemistry to the earth because there's all kinds of cool chemistry that goes on in making minerals and preserving past climate. There's biology that you can apply to the earth because there are past organisms and there are microbes that are interacting with the, with the like, you know, rocks in the earth and stuff. Right. And you can apply even sciences like psychology and sociology because there's a lot of ways that people interact with the earth. And, you know, when we think about how people interact with disasters like earthquakes, there's a whole field that's disaster research. And it's like the psychology <laughs> right. of people interacting with earthquakes. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's geoscience is the ultimate applied science. It's awesome. Yeah. No. Uh, uh you sold me. Uh, wow. I'm gonna transfer uh, <laughs> over to the College of Geophysics at uh, UC Irvine if we even have one. Uh, but yeah, no, that is amazing. You you do. There's some cool glaciologists there. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. I might I might have to hit them up and be like, what's good? <laughs> I know I have to say more than that, but <laughs> okay. Um. So here's another question here. Um, it asks, it, and it's by, man, I'm going to try to do this. Ushnish uh, Sengupta. That's my best shot. Um, are there large public data sets for earthquake forecasting uh, which geophysicists or data scientists can use to validate their techniques? Uh, go ahead. So yeah, let's first let's start with the words earthquake forecasting <laughs> and make sure that we're all on the proper terms there. No one can predict earthquakes. If someone tells you they can predict the time, place, magnitude of an earthquake, they are not using science to do that. Uh, They're selling but you something. We still do have general ideas. Yeah, yeah. We we still do have general ideas about what places have higher earthquake hazards and what sort of in general kind of recurrence intervals um, earthquakes can have. So you may have heard that like occasionally people say like, oh, the San Andreas is overdue for an earthquake. And it is mm. a little bit past its recurrence interval, mm. but that doesn't really mean anything because sometimes it'll be 100 years between big earthquakes. Sometimes it'll be 400 years. Right. I, I so have it had that. it's not like a helpful prediction technique. I have had that <laughs> question like in a way because like uh, I, I, I don't remember the name, but it was after like we got an earthquake here in California, it was the most recent one where, uh, and, and he started a thread about uh, the next, and he, he was kind of like talking about the, the big one. I, apparently that's a phrase. I'm not from California, so I don't, yeah. Um, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. So I'm not like in, you know, with that crowd, but um, the, but apparently to me, it, you know, you have this one camp of seismologists that are saying, you know, we can't predict, we can't predict it. And then we're but yet we all, I guess not we all, but, you know, there's this, uh, a lot of seismologists seem to say, well, 
but there is a big one coming. Yeah, yeah, there absolutely is. We know that the San Andreas can and does make big earthquakes. Okay, okay. So there's a field called paleoseismology, and paleoseismology is looking for evidence of past earthquakes. Um, you can do it by, like, you can find um, lake beds are a great place to look because lakes tend to put down um, sediment in layers. So if you find a dried-out lake bed and you can mm. look for a layer with really disturbed sediment, um, that can give you... So there, there are scientists what? who dig trenches that's into so dried crazy. lake beds to look for ancient earthquakes, which is cool. <laughs> wow. So th that's how we know about how often the San Andreas will have big earthquakes. Um, uh, yeah, so we know kind of general things using some historical evidence like that. So um, let's see, what was, I gotta remind myself of the, yeah, the original question. Okay, public data sets for earth, earthquakes. Right, um, right. Yeah, so one of the really rad things about seismology is that there is so much open source data. So there's this organization called the Incorporated Research Institutions for Seismology. Um, and wow. anyone can go get seismometer data from that. You heard it here first, visit after any, hours. Anybody, yeah, Say it again, any, Say it again. Plug it again. Anybody can go get data from that, which is really rad. Yeah, so IRIS, Incorporated Research Institutions mm. for Seismology. You can go on the website and learn how you can get data from them. You can get data from earthquakes. You can get data when there are no earthquakes. You can get data anytime you want um, from <laughs> seismometers that are in their network. And so if you want to check out like what seismometers are looking like during or before earthquakes, you, you can do that. Um, and you can look up uh, the U.S. Geological Survey has a phenomenal catalog of earthquakes. They have um, a really fun searchable catalog where you can type in like, you know, a couple of dates and like a magnitude range. And then just all the earthquakes will just pop up all of their dates and times. Um, and it's, it's really cool to play with. And so there's a lot you can learn about how often earthquakes happen in your area. It might be more than you think. For example, in Los Angeles, we have tiny earthquakes every single day. Too small for people to feel, most of them. Um, but yeah, there are there are tons of earthquakes happening every day. And uh, I have yeah, a question. you can get free and, and, and data. I, from, I don't yeah. want to lose it. I don't want to lose it because I think it's... Okay, bring it. I, I just think it's such a fun question. Um, you hear in folklore and you hear uh, from farmers, this and that, people who raise animals, wild animals, that somehow animals know a long time before that an earthquake is coming. Is there any evidence to support that? And if you do off the top of your head kind of know the lore or the history behind that kind of story, what is it? I have a ton to say about this topic. So first off, right the important thing, it is a myth. Animals cannot predict earthquakes. It is wow. a myth. Now, sometimes some of this lore comes from the fact that animals are a little <laughs> more sensitive than us big clunky humans. So remember right. how I mentioned that um, uh, there are different types of seismic waves that come out of an earthquake. Mm -hmm. And the, the first one is the P wave. That's mm -hmm. the fastest. So it reaches you first. Mm -hmm. That's usually the weakest wave. Mm. So there's a lot of times when, you know, a P wave will go right by and some human will just not even notice. <laughs> and then they might notice the S wave and the surface wave later because those can be bigger amplitudes. Right, so right, you would right. really notice those. And like a moderate earthquake, you might totally miss the P, but then notice the later ones. Mm -hmm. But, you know, sometimes animals are a little better at knowing what's going on than we are. Right. And so they might feel that P wave that we miss just because they're, you know, your cat napping on the couch um, is feeling more than, you know, you cooking dinner. Um, and on your cell phone, also so drinking like five of, cups of coffee. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, yeah, they're more sensitive <laughs> and they're doing less. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so there's lots and lots of stories of, you know, um, someone's cat or dog like freaking out. And then, you know, three seconds later, the human starts feeling the shaking and they're like, oh, my God, my pet <laughs> predicted the earthquake. But no, they didn't. They didn't. Right. It's nice to think that they can, but that's not true. They just felt it before you mm. did. So the earthquake already happened. They just felt a wave that reached you before you felt the bigger one. So that's where a lot of the myths come from. Right is, uh, wow. People just, you know, being kind of clunky and less sensitive. Of course, yeah. Um, but yeah, no one has found any ways that uh, mm. anybody, animals or people, can reliably predict earthquakes before mm. they happen. Mm. Okay, right. But and we do oh. have, at some point, I can talk, I don't know if we want to move on to more questions and stuff, of but course, I can talk yeah. about earthquake early warning, too, because that's a really rad topic. Yeah, uh, and, I uh, think that's... Very interesting. I think that's definitely, I mean, there's only other two, like, other questions there that we can get to, so go ahead. Um, kind of give us okay. the intro on that, give us the, you know, the DL, and I'll just kick back. Yes. So, earthquake early warning is awesome. And if you're in California, it is already for you. You can get the MyShake app. You can go to myshake.berkeley.edu and mm -hmm. learn about it and get the app for your phone. And uh, you can have a few seconds alert in some cases for earthquakes, which is really bad. And the rest of mm -hmm. the U.S. West Coast is getting it in. I think, I think Washington and Oregon are looking at the fall or something and getting it. Mm -hmm. uh, Japan already has it in a lot of places. But how it works is super cool. So, you know, those earthquakes, they have to get from where the earthquake starts to you. So an earthquake happens. You know, maybe our earthquake, if our earthquake happens in, say, San Bernardino, mm -hmm. um, it'll take a little while for those seismic waves to get to me in Pasadena or you in Los Angeles. Um, so those waves are traveling and they are meeting seismometers along the way to me and you. Mm. And those seismometers are hooked up to a network of computers mm. that's looking for signals that look like earthquakes because yeah. there's seismometers all around earthquake-prone areas. Mm. So here in L.A., there's tons of seismometers so they're all yeah hooked up to a network and you know if one seismometer sees sees something that looks like an earthquake it's not going to trigger it because you know maybe that was right. just somebody tapped into that's why you have a lot though seismometer um, yeah. yeah yeah so you have a lot of them and then when they notice when the when um the detectors trigger a pattern that says mm. this is really an earthquake you know we've seen it at multiple stations it's moving in the right way right. Now we warn people who live where the earthquake waves have not reached yet. And is this all and automated? So for you know, all of it, like it's all. Yeah, so it's all an all an automatic that's system. Amazing. No human needs to look and see anything. That is so cool. Yeah, it's it's really cool. <laughs> wow. So yeah, so if an earthquake happened in San Bernardino, um, then you and I, with the with the MyShake app um, or with other other public alert systems, we can um, get just a couple of seconds of warning that the shaking is coming. But mm. a couple of seconds is really important yeah. because, you know, if you're cooking, you can turn off the stove and mm. not start a fire. Mm. If you are a dentist, you can take the pointy thing out of your patient's <laughs> mouth. If you are wow. surgery, you can, you know, shut that down. Uh, a few <laughs> seconds makes a big difference. You can, um, you know, you can slow down a high-speed train that you're on. That's what they do in Japan is they mm. slow down the trains. You don't want to be on a high-speed train or an earthquake hits. <laughs> um, so, yeah, earthquake early warning is really rad. The... It doesn't, uh, it doesn't always give you warning because if you are right near where the earthquake starts, course, then yeah. you can't get warning right. because you are yeah. giving the warning. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so these, it, it doesn't always give you warning of shaking, but right. it does its best and it can give a lot of people a few seconds and that can be really important. Wow, man. 
You heard it here first. Physics After Hours with Celeste Labedz. <laughs> Man, that is so awesome. Um, so what we're going to do here real quick is we're going to take a quick few-minute break. Um, and we will be right back. Uh, and we're going to probably stay on for another uh, 10, 15 minutes after that. Um, and so go ahead. If you have any questions that are burning your minds, please put them in the live chat. Uh, and we'll be sure to do our best to get to them in the, the uh, lightning round to come. So, yeah, we'll be right back.
Okay, and we are back here uh, with Physics After Hours with our very special guest, geophysicist and cryoseismologist at Caltech. She's getting her PhD. She is awesome to talk to. Um, we are entering the lightning round uh, of all of your questions here. Um, but before we do that, uh, I just want to say if you've enjoyed this installment of Physics After Hours, uh, please give us a thumbs up, give us a subscribe, uh, and if you have a dollar in your pocket, I do have a Patreon, um, and yeah, and, uh, oh, you have a Twitter also, Celeste, why don't you go ahead and plug that? Oh, yeah, so, um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at, uh, Celeste Lebeds. uh, you can find how to spell that, um, in the title of this <laughs> or, uh, on Dylan's Twitter, What'd but I, I post that? lots of cool field photos on Instagram, um, yeah, if you want to see what the glacier looks like. So, uh, actually, before we did this, when we were doing a test run, you told me a very, very funny, uh, way to remember how to pronounce your last name. Do you just want to <laughs> say that again? <laughs> Yeah, sure. Whenever I do media or podcast, they ask how to pronounce my name. And I say it's like you were making up where French people sleep. You'd say, oh, la beds. <laughs> so that's how you pronounce my last name. <laughs> I love that. Perfect. <laughs> okay, so let me go ahead here. Um, and let's go ahead and try to... Okay, so we got uh, the question taken away from your own bloodline. So we have a question here by uh, Ushnish <laughs> Sengupta. Uh, are there... Large public. Oh wait, we just did that. Never mind. Moving down. Um, we did that one. We did yeah, that one. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> we did that one. <laughs> we did. Uh, okay. Uh, another question. Oh man, you guys are messing with me here. Uh, Harishankar <laughs> Tripathi. Oh, I'm sorry. Tripathi. Um, that was my best shot. Um, earthquakes uh, of magnitude above 9.0 generally are generally devastating. How do these earthquakes affect the axis? of earth i guess earth's rotation uh and change the duration of the day uh and the night okay so this is a cool question mm -hmm. so yeah big earthquakes put out a lot of energy earthquake magnitude is on like a logarithmic scale so they just get huger and huger mm. and huger like unfathomably so mm. So, uh, for example, a magnitude 12 earthquake would have to be on a fault like the size of the Earth. So, like, a magnitude 12 earthquake would split the Earth in half. Can't happen. Don't what? worry. Um, but, yeah, so uh, even earthquakes that are, like, magnitude 9, like, bigger earthquakes that can wow. happen, um, those uh, can actually, because it's so much motion, it can just slightly um, give the Earth just, a, like, a teensy little kick and uh, maybe, yeah, gain or lose a couple of microseconds in your day. Whoa. Okay, you heard it here first. Just accept our hours. I need to go <laughs> contemplate that. Uh, <laughs> wonderful. Okay, so like I said, you got questions. This is a lightning round. Uh, she just blew my mind in under, like, what, 30 seconds. Wonderful. Okay, uh, from Chunkmaster Flex, uh, did you always know you wanted to, wanted to be in a subfield of physics that involved field work? Did you try anything else? theory, computation, etc. beforehand. Okay, so um, I decided in high school that I wanted to go into geophysics. I did the like science mm. Olympiad competitions. Um, so yeah, I was on I was on my school's nerd team. It was great. Oh, um, nice. And there was an event that was about 
there was an event that was about earthquakes and volcanoes and it just really jived with me. Mm. It just, I loved that it was a cool way to think about the earth. And so I knew I always liked science and being outdoors. So then I got a double major in physics and geology because I wanted to go into geophysics. Um, and so, yeah, I really wow. loved the outdoors component of geology, um, even though I knew that like physics was like, you know, the way that I love to think. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so geophysics is a natural pairing of those two. But yeah, when I was picking out, um, you know, what direction I wanted my research to go, um, the opportunity to do field work, while it wasn't like a requirement for me, I knew it was something that I really liked to do. Mm-hmm. And lots of geophysicists can be kind of indoor cats and not want to do their field work. <laughs> so like it's uh, there were opportunities for like somebody who actually wants to go out um yeah so then I, w- I was able to get into this glaciers project um and because i was more ready than a lot of the other geophysicists to just like go ship off to some ice for a month <laughs> oh man all right wonderful i mean you're killing the lightning round so far okay we have another one from mythos mint uh how old can glaciers be and can the movement of ancient ancient glaciers be tracked Ooh, this is a super cool question. There's lots of cool stuff that go into this. So first off, how old can glaciers be? So Mm -hmm. glaciers are made by snow falling every year and then snow piles up and piles up and piles up and then it squishes it into hard ice. So at the bottom of the glacier, you have the oldest ice, like loosely. Um, Mm -hmm. So places Mm -hmm. like Antarctica, there is some ice that have, you know, gone to the bottom and like gotten, um, you know, trapped down there that is like over a million years old. You have super old ice down there. Um, a lot of, a lot of glaciers have been around for longer and have had ice cycling kind of through them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yes, the oldest ice you can find is a couple million years old, but most glaciers what? have mostly younger ice, but they've been there for a long time. Would you drink and you, it? You can track where glaciers use. Oh it, yeah. I mean, I drank glacier ice water in the field because that's all what? there is to drink. That is so um, sick. But, wow. uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although we're usually because we're on top of the glacier, we're drinking the fresh stuff. Um, Man, that gives a whole but, other uh, like yeah, meaning yeah. of like on the rocks. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Um, but then, so you can track where glaciers used to be because they leave behind very characteristic topography. So if you've ever been to Yosemite National Park, it's beautiful. If you haven't been, you can Google image search it because it's beautiful and you should totally see it. Um, <laughs> It has these, it's a big U-shaped valley with big steep sides, and it's a nice big U. That's a smoking gun that there was a glacier there. Glaciers make U-shaped valleys, whereas rivers carving instead make V-shaped valleys. So if if you're in some mountains, like Rocky Mountain National Park has um, glacier-carved valleys as well. Um, Fjords are another glacier-like field field, sign. If there's fjords in Norway on the coast, you can look up. Play fjords? around with them on Google Earth. Say fjords? Um, yeah. Yeah, fjords. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's the U-shaped so that, thing those, you were talking about? Yeah, that's that's a big U-shaped valley that interacts the ocean. If, if oh. a U-shaped valley runs into the ocean, then it's a fjord. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah. So, Norway looks like Norway because it used to have glaciers all along the edge, and that's what gives it those nice, nice um, little inlets. So, yeah, big U-shaped valleys are what glaciers make, um, as opposed to rivers. When a river carves a valley, it's a V-shape. Oh, man. I, I have so many questions about why that's the case. But again, this is lightning round, so I won't hijack them. So we got another question yeah, here. Round. Yeah, go. exactly. We got another question here from uh, Leo Stein. Uh, what's up, Leo? Um, he says, I lived in California for about seven years total. Uh, and the only earthquake I felt was like a 2.2 sad face. Uh, then when I lived in Boston, we got something like a five 
question mark. And so, so this yeah. actually brings up a really cool point. Yeah. So, um, yeah, earthquakes happen in different frequency in different places, but also how and where you can feel them varies in different places too. So in Southern California, there's lots of earthquakes, and it looks like it looks like Leo never felt any uh, any big ones. Oh uh, no! Which you know, you're you're lucky, you're lucky, Leo, because the big <laughs> ones are scary. Um, but uh, yeah, so a magnitude uh, 2.2 earthquake, um, you can in somewhere like Southern California, you can, you know, feel it over a small area, but, but not very far. So for example, just, you know, two nights ago, we had a 3.7 in, um, in the LA area and I didn't feel it because, yeah, um, no, I didn't feel it either. That energy attenuates. Yeah. The energy attenuates as you get further away, but how it attenuates depends on your local geology. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. an earthquake that's a magnitude five, like Leo felt in Boston, um, you can feel a magnitude five earthquake further away Mm. on the East coast than you can on the West coast because the geology is different there. So Mm. even though the earthquake is the same magnitude, um, you can feel it over Mm. a larger area. So like one Um, over R squared is, is is ideal, but, uh, if, but that's assuming an isotropic kind of just constant medium, but the earth is not like that. And so, you know, you get this big, you know, this big bump in, 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 in the earth's crust or whatever. Uh, and it can go out in different directions in all kind of weird ways. Yeah. And that's why, um, we really want to understand like the geologic structures Mm -hmm. of places like LA because we have sedimentary basins here. So you and I, if you're in LA and I'm in uh, Pasadena, we're both in sedimentary basins. And what that means is that there's harder bedrock that's like, you know, granite and stuff, really hard stuff underneath. But then there's a lot of stuff that was just, you know, brought in by like rivers and stuff, sand and things just filled it in. And so those are very different densities. Right. Yeah. That sounds really complicated. Yeah, sedimentary basins will ring in an earthquake. Like if you hit what? like a bowl of jello, it'll just like keep jiggling for a while. <laughs> sedimentary basins do that too. Wow. So, you know, here in Pasadena, I would feel earthquake shaking longer than someone in the San Gabriel Mountains, you know, just uphill from me. Um because they are on hard bedrock in the mountains and I am on uh, sediment in Pasadena. Right on, man. Man. Awesome stuff. Okay, so we have another question here, lightning round from uh, Quan Lo. Uh, he says, hello, fascinating talk. Besides seismometers, what other sensors do you use? Uh, that is, I've heard of GPS-enabled uh, trackers. Just wondered what other tools that you use. Okay, so GPS is is a really cool tool um, that is helpful for a lot of geophysics because there are awesome scientific GPS units that are, yeah, they're way better than your phone. Mm-hmm. They can get you within like, uh, you know, millimeters. Um, and that's really rad for tracking things like plate motions. Mm. There's also other cool tools. So like for my research, I use hydrologic gauges because I care about uh, how much water is coming out of my glacier um, because it's, you know, it's, it's melting in the summer, which even healthy glaciers do not under climate change, but they are melting a little extra now because it's a little too warm. Um, but yeah, so I use hydrologic gauges all the time. You can also use cool tools like um, you can get interesting information um, by measuring the local gravity field. Mm. So the exact strength of gravity actually varies a little bit depending on the local geology below your feet. Wow. So there yeah, are very course, precise yeah. gravimeters. Wow. 
Yeah. So I've, um, we use a, um, we have a field geophysics class that I, lightning I, I round, Celeste, for. lightning round. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So it feels like a gravimeter. So I've like taken students out to, to the desert with a gravimeter and like measured it in different places. Um, the resistivity of the ground can give you ideas of near surface structures. So you literally like put a voltage across pins in the ground. Um, yeah. so you get soil resistivity. Uh, yeah, there's all kinds of cool Drones are awesome. Wow. You can take digital elevation models with a drone flying around. Yeah, so many cool toys in geophysics. <laughs> oh, right on. I love it. I love it. Okay, so we have another question from your own bloodline. This doesn't seem relevant whatsoever, but it's lightning round. So let's see if we can give it. Uh, Marie Labed, uh says, you've been given an elephant. You can't get rid of it. What do you do with it? I can't get rid of it. What do I do with it? Hmm. Well, I guess I have a small backyard. It wouldn't be too happy there, but if I can't get rid of it, can't then it goes there. Yeah, that's just, <laughs> there we go. Uh, you heard it here first, physics after hours. All right. So uh, <laughs> moving on, uh, how far away? So it's a question from uh, Tony Montana saying, uh, how far away are we from predicting earthquakes? So that kind of, right, we don't on really that know a lot. because right. we don't know if. What it would take maybe. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, right on. Lightning yeah, round. So if it is possibly predictable, it's a long way away. <laughs> but uh, yeah, okay, we don't cool, know. Okay, cool, cool. Right on. Um, okay, so we have another question here from uh, uh, Latro uh, Genawile. I'm sorry. Um, is a sudden pole shift even possible, uh, as is often discussed on the forums? I don't know what the forums are. Uh, if so, would it be a north-south reversal or at any angle, so like a pole shift, just like a random pole reversal between the north and south poles. Okay, so this is this is an interesting topic in mm-hmm. uh, geology mm-hmm. and geophysics because we know that Earth's magnetic pole has changed directions what? before, but one of the things that we're not, yeah, it's changed directions. Um, yeah, that's really wild. So this is remember I talked about seafloor spreading. Uh huh. That's a great place to see it because huh. um, iron in the rocks will will um, those minerals will cool with the iron um, aligned with the magnetic field direction. Um, wow. So when when it forms at a mid ocean ridge, it sort of cements in what direction the magnetic field was, uh-huh. and when it flips, you can look in there. There's oh, stripes okay. yeah. on the mag on the seafloor huh. showing you the magnetic re- reversals of the past. But we don't really know exactly whether those reversals are sudden or whether they take a mm. long time so like mm. scientists aren't super sure and even you know sudden here is still probably over hundreds of years because right, we're talk- right, talking course. geologic right, scale. Right, right. so it wouldn't be like you know tomorrow bam the pole is <laughs> the other way whoa um, north is south south is north my compass <laughs> what yeah, are you doing <laughs> But yeah, so we don't really know whether that happens, you know, over a couple of decades or hundred of years or whether it like um, is, you know, or whether it takes thousands of years um, or whether it um, happens really suddenly or whether it like decreases and then increases the other way. There's a lot of questions, mostly because, uh, yeah, geology is preserving a lot of time in a small (laughs) space. Um, So, yeah, it's hard to get those fine scale details. Right on. Okay, man, you are killing it. Uh, another question here from Chunk Master Flex. Uh, what would the hypothetical damage hypothetical damage be from a magnitude ten earthquake in the middle of the Pacific? So you cannot get a magnitude ten earthquake in the middle of the Pacific. Oh, because you heard to it get here first. A you need a fault. 
Yeah, yeah, you can't. But you could. So you can't get big earthquakes <laughs> on the edge of the Pacific out of those subduction zones. What a badass response. the thing response. that really limits... <laughs> yes. So let, let's talk about a subduction zone, though. So the thing that really limits what your upper like magnitude limit is is your fault size. So just more area is rupturing in a bigger earthquake. And, uh, yeah, so the, the big biggest earthquake we've had several earthquakes in known recorded history that have been over magnitude nine um mm. i think like 9.5 or something was the biggest one that was in chile in 1960 um and uh yeah so that's a huge area you know the area that was ruptured in an earthquake that's like a 9.5 is like the area of like the state of california it's a huge area that is moving um so to get a magnitude 10 it needs to be even bigger i don't know if there are any faults on the earth that are capable of producing a magnitude 10. Oh, um, damn. You heard it here first. Wow. I love it. Air. I didn't yeah. know that, to be honest. Uh, and wow. Yeah, yeah. It's about the area that flips in the earthquake. Okay. Um, let's see. So here's a question from David Barardo. He says, what is the weirdest rock you've ever held? Weirdest rock I've ever held? Um, I guess fossils are kind of rocks because they're 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 made of minerals um and they're weird rocks because like you know it's fun to hold a fossil and think oh man this thing was alive once the longer <laughs> back it goes like the weirder it gets the more of an existential crisis you have like while holding it um yeah yeah okay so here's a, a, a fun question um from Moshe Levy he says you mentioned that er uh that earthquakes can change the duration of the day uh, what mechanism can cause this without violating the conservation of angular momentum or just momentum in general is that, you know, you think if this thing's just jiggling internally, you know, how could it, it's like bootstrapping yourself, you know? <laughs> yeah. So no worries. We're not violating any physics here. <laughs> um, internal motions can change your right. um, yeah. rotation speed mm -hmm. without violating your angular momentum. You know, classic, classic example of figure skater, pulls his of arms course, in and then right, he spins faster. Right, right, right. Uh, so this is kind of like that. It's, it's an internal motion um, that can, uh, wow. and you know, you can just like, you can also kind of like, you mm -hmm. can make yourself turn a little bit by turning different parts of your body at different rates. Mm -hmm. um, you can do kinds of things like that to adjust your motion in little ways while still keeping your total angular momentum Wonderful. fine and dandy. Wonderfully explained and so succinct on that lightning round. Okay. Um, man, people are, <laughs> people just like the, the more you give, the more they fire. All right. Uh, well, I love it. okay. That one's about quantum computing. I don't think, I, I don't know enough to talk about quantum computing and, uh, earthquake prediction or do you, um, so right now, um, I don't think it's, co it's computing that's limiting it, our ability exactly. to predict earthquakes. Yeah, that's if something it's at all possible, because wow. it might be fundamentally random. Right. Um, but if it's not fundamentally random, then what we're really limited on is data acquisition, mm. because we would need to know literally every exact thing about a fault. Um, and, you know, even if we knew all that, it still might be fundamentally random and we can't predict them. Sure, so. absolutely. And, 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 you know, the, the takeaway is that in, nobody's really convinced right now that it's computing power uh it's yeah a, yeah computing <laughs> is more computing is great but like that's that's not the thing that is stopping us from exactly exactly <laughs> um okay so man okay you guys keep firing but fair enough we're gonna take two more and then we're gonna have to sign off um it says are there uh so this is a question from uh jason uh real saying are there any electromagnetic per uh, precursors to earthquakes i think this is kind of a la 
I think there was some dude in, you know, wherever saying, oh, I can detect these electromagnetic fluctuations and predict earthquakes. Yeah, so this is a, a, an interesting little topic that for a while, like, science was really interested in, but mm-hmm. then they figured out mm-hmm. it wasn't actually that helpful. So right, there was right. there was one earthquake, I think it might have even been in California, and there were electric field sensors that detected something that looked a little bit funny shortly mm. beforehand, and they were wondering, hey, is this the precursor, you know, is this a precursor? Like, have we cracked it? Can right, we look right, for these right. and then give people more warning and help them say, but then it, it didn't turn out to be true, right. because you can have... Um, funny little fluctuations in magnetic fields due to things like fluid flow. Um, mm. And those can happen mm. totally independently of earthquakes. So you get that change and there's mm. no earthquake wow. and you can have earthquakes without things like that at all. So they are, they, for a while people were like, oh my God, is this it? Can we do it? But then it didn't pan out. So bummer. An honest but, uh, intellectual yeah, pursuit yeah, though. Are... An honest intellectual pursuit. Man. Yeah, yeah, it was it was an honest pursuit. Some, some people still... Tr- try to sell them as like i can predict earthquakes with this right, electromagnetic right, field right, thing but like right, you right. can't do that reliably <laughs> yeah they're just trying to sell you you know their latest uh, topical cream or something i don't know um let's see um let me just scroll down here for our last question um is this is a d- difficult decision i have a few to choose between you heard it here first physics after hours um, okay, why not just ask this one? Chunk Master Flex, you asked a bunch of great questions. You've earned the right to ask a silly question. Um, uh, what would win in a fight? 10 billion sit-down lawnmowers or the sun? Okay, no, that's a bad one. I didn't read that beforehand. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, the sun would win. Come on now. Yeah, the sun. <laughs> it would take um, a lot to beat the sun. <laughs> okay, so let me just read this because I don't get to read them all. You know, I just get to kind of, you know, go. Yeah, with it. so you're trying to read them live. Yeah, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I'm producer and podcast host. Um, it's a very difficult thing to do, which is why I'm not particularly great at either. Okay, moving down. So Tony Montana says, if you ever have an instance like you were sure a big earthquake is coming, how do you go about warning the public or authority? So. I guess, you know, this is a hypothetical. Like, if, say, I don't know, maybe the Earth called you and texted you and said, hey, I'm about to go. Like, I'm about to to blow up. (laughs) (laughs) So if anyone ever does tell you that they are sure a big earthquake is coming and they give you, like, a time place, they're they're not using science to do that. Um, I love it. But, uh, so, I mean... And because no one is doing no no one is using science to do that, I know there, there would be no way for me to credibly warn people. Um, uh, so wow. there's not even like there, a, there would be an infrastructure in place because like anybody who's doing that, you yeah. know, yeah, okay, fair enough, man. Okay, so let's just we do have if you missed it earlier, we do yeah. have earthquake early warning infrastructure to yes. tell people about earthquakes yes. that have already yes. started but not reached them yet. So right. that infrastructure is in place. Um, myshake.berkeley.edu is where you can learn about the app if you're in California, Washington, and Oregon, getting it soon. Right, right on. So you heard it, myshake.berkeley.edu. You heard it here first, physics after hours. Probably not first, but maybe second. Um, But the idea uh, at the end of the day is that you can't predict earthquakes. Um, You can just pick up the, like you said, um, signals that we get from seismometers. that we, you know, they give you a few second warning right now. And that's the best our science has to offer right now. And maybe it'll develop. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully it will. 
Uh, man, but God darn it, this has been an absolute pleasure to have you on, Celeste. Um, I've had a ton of fun too. I'm always happy to talk about geophysics <laughs> with anybody ever. Like if you run into me on the on the street, wow. like ask me about tsunamis <laughs> or like glaciers or like whatever. Man, okay. So uh, yeah, so um, that's gonna be it for the night. Uh, thank you all so much for tuning in. You all have been just such awesome, active participants. Everybody's always curious about the ground underneath their feet, uh, and man, just such a great viewership tonight. Um, thanks for the awesome questions. Uh, do you have any closing words? Um, I don't know. Oh, yeah. You should all know what to do during an earthquake. This is an important thing we haven't covered sure yet. Ahead. Yeah, you go should, ahead. The safest, the safest thing for you to do during an earthquake when you feel shaking or when you get the alert from early warning is drop, cover, and hold on. So you want to get on the ground because one of the major causes of injuries is people falling over because the ground is shaking. So you want to get on the ground, get on all fours. You want to crawl underneath something sturdy like a table or a desk if it's available if there is not something available then you want to get next to an interior wall um that mm. doesn't have anything hanging on it and then you want to cover your neck and if you are underneath something you need to hold on to that thing so it does not you don't get shaken in different directions so yeah drop cover and hold on you can learn more if you go to earthquakecountry.org you can get all your safety tips backed by science right on you heard it here first wonderful having you such an amazing guest uh and i hope to have you on again soon um if you're not too overbooked during these trying times um, <laughs> but just remember stay home you know stay safe and to also stay inertial good night everybody <laughs>